HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I am Patrick Martins, host of The Main Course. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway, and miraculously, the sun just came back right as we were beginning the show. Uh, it's been a gloomy week. Really, 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 really rough start to spring here in Brooklyn. However, to uh, talk about a trending topic of the week, uh, once again, we had a really great breakthrough for New York City. Um, I'm talking, of course, about the ban on, pla- or not ban, the fee added to plastic bags. My mind is like a plastic bag. Yeah, that was polystyrene of the X-ray specs. Actually, a very aptly named. Why don't we ban styrofoam by these by this time anyway? Um, but anyway, um, so you know, we there was a lot of debate over whether or not this this tax or this fee, a five cent fee, really on plastic bags um, in grocery stores, should be applied. Uh, a lot of voices of dissent spoke to the fact that it would disproportionately affect the poor. Um, and yeah, let's 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 talk a little bit more about it. My guest today is Mike Edison. What do you think about this? I'm all for it, 100. You know, percent Europe was way ahead. Yeah, uh, on this. For well, all other the... cities in America were too. And um, but as long as I can remember, since my band started touring Europe, you always charged you you know a few fennigs for a, a plastic bag, and people were very much in the habit of bringing yeah. their own bags. Europe was always ahead on, on the green tip, though. With um, you know, uh, the lights on timers in all the hallways mm-hmm. and toilets that use less water. I mean, LED I mean, lights. 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about this is that it really affects. It's not just like adding another invisible tax to your like paycheck. It's really like put it in front of your face and it's going to add to that like lifestyle changes I that it, everyone's going to have to make. Hey, save a tree, save the planet. Attitude adjustment. Yeah. So I'm all for it. Mike's all for it. Mike, you... Convenience is overrated, you know? Yeah. I mean, people just got to get with it. Uh, you, you can't keep you know, behaving like this and then like expect shocked when the planet is dying. It is uh, just a lot of kind of kicking and screaming. I, I realize that, you know, if you do want those extra bags, you're going to have to pay a little bit more for it. 
Um, you know, we're not going to not see plastic bags, though. We're going to see plenty <laughs> of plastic bags yet. And by the come. way, they're not toys. Yeah. <laughs> Dry cleaning bags are not toys. Well, no. Yeah. Well, maybe now people will find more more ways to use them now that they're kind of have more value. We'll see. Um, thanks for joining us, Mike. Uh, oh, oh, Kathy, I love being here. This is this is great. You've been. I feel like you're like the Seinfeld to whatever the hell it is that I do <laughs> at my show directly after <laughs> yours. It's you know you're you're my leading. This is why my ratings are so high. Really? On Arts and Seizures, which is at 2 o'clock, also starring me today. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're doing your show right after, so we'll, we'll, maybe we'll see how that goes. Well, but, um, I, I'm on a book tour. I'm, in the mid- yeah. I'm actually in the middle of a book tour. Uh, my new book is called You Are a Complete Disappointment. It is a triumphant memoir of failed expectations, and this is sort of day three of this epic tour. Uh, we had a party in East Village Thursday. We've been to, all the way to Metuchen, New Jersey, my, my hometown, but this week we're going to uh, San Francisco, Oakland, L.A., we're going to be in Chicago, Milwaukee, and Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. That's awesome. I love this book, and I love that you turned me into that person who's like cackling <laughs> into a book on the subway several oh, that, times. Well, that is the nicest uh, thing uh, an author can possibly hear is like people like laughing in public when they read yes. your book. Except for the guys. I've gotten literally now five emails from grown men who said I made them cry in airplanes. Aww. And the flight attendant came over to ask That's them if the they thing, were okay. Though. Okay, so this book, just to back up, like, Mike, your, your book is about it, the title is taken from from some of the, your your father's dying words to you they, they were, on a deathbed. <laughs> they were quite I mean, literally, his last words to me: "You are a complete disappointment." I mean, he called me over. I flew across the country to see him. Um, he never really liked me that much. We did not have a healthy relationship, um, and I kind of spent my life kind of hoping I would hear some sort of validation. You know, right. some son, I'm proud of you. Um, didn't really work out that way in the end. Oh my God. You are a complete disappointment. And pretty soon after that, they pretty much just carted him off to die. And at least I could say he gave me the gift of the story to tell, and he gave me this sort of odd sort of closure that I, you know, it yeah. started out being a lot of baggage, and I just kind of had to clear my head out of it. But. Uh, you know, at, at at the end, I think it's turned into a pretty positive thing, and it's weird. It way. is triumphant, like as you said, and like as it says in the subtitle. I mean, but like clearly, like this is a jarring sort of thing to read because I'm not sure whether to laugh or to cry. Well, and it's it's touching in the most unusual way, but it really is like, and I feel for for you, I feel bad for you in that instance. But I also reading this book more and more and get, getting to know your family. I feel bad for your dad, you know, like, yeah, he's a, he's a tragic character. And it took me a while to find compassion for this guy who's on his deathbed. My dad was very successful. And and I'll tell you what, Kathy, if you had met him, you would have liked him because Mm -hmm. he was charming outwardly. You know, he was very much of the Dale Carnegie school of charm. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew how to make small talk. He knew how to uh, get you to talk about yourself and pretend to be interested. Just, you know, just to charm you and to sell you something. But it was about as deep as a puddle, unfortunately. And with me, I didn't get that charm or, or any of this sort of like faux generosity for me. It was like, you'll never make it. You're wasting your time. He didn't think that writing books was a career. Mm-hmm. He didn't think that playing music was a legitimate career. <laughs> uh, I've been moderately successful at both. I mean, I'm very fortunate in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brothers are uh, a financial guy, a okay. Wall Street mocker. And the other one's a lawyer. So they gave him a narrative that you know yeah. he, he could he could embrace, but me, you know, I dropped out of, out of you know NYU, and that kind of didn't really go over too well. Then for an encore, I dropped out of Columbia, and that really put the boot in. But yet, you've been a successful author. You have uh, other books. You have the memoir. I have fun everywhere I go. Then the social history of sex on the newsstand called Dirty, Dirty, Dirty. A political satire called Bye Bye Miss American Pie. You've also co-written a book with Joe Bastianic 
and you've been a former editor and publisher for the High Times magazine, and so much more. You're host here on Arts and Seizures. It's a crazy, goofy career. I'm it really is. happy. No, no, that's the happy ending to yeah. the book. I mean, it starts out, it's so, and it is heartbreaking. And after the hospital room, I mean, I, I left a fucking mess. I mean, I was just, you know, crushed. I cried so much like any son would, even though my father didn't like me. And I honestly don't think I liked him very much because he had been a bully, and to my mother as well. Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, I know this book is sort of about my dad, but it's Mom's Day. Um, she was a bit of a pill, too, to be honest with you. <laughs> but um, she was kind of bullied into submission by my dad. And I have compassion for both of them, which I don't think I did at the time. It was hard to see. Mm-hmm. But this book is also about um, learning to uh, you know, find some sympathy for these you know, tragic people. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a bully. I got beaten up when I was in high school, too, junior high school as a little kid. I love- and, you know, at the end of the day, I feel sorry for him, you know, yeah. and to learning to uh, forgive isn't like for my father's sake. This is uh, or it would forgive that bully. You know, it, it empowers me, not them. It, it frees me from the anger. It's sort of like a, an atonement, you could say, this uh, work, um, just kind of getting all those feelings out there and. Well, you know, people always ask me, is the book like cathartic to talk about your dad, to talk about your family, you know, and to really work through this thing? Because it, it was pretty brutal um, being kind of like, you know, narcissistic dad. Um, I don't, you know, it, 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 is, it is tough to write. I don't know if the catharsis is the right word. I think it's just a, an easy word to use. And fortunately, I was able to work through it. Now this is just me telling the story. But, uh, th- you know, I'm really surprised to hear that this is so affecting because reading your book, it's so damn funny. And I'm like cracking up on the subway reading it. And every... Every description, even though how, even no matter how tragic it is, you write it in a tone that is just so likable and funny. Like, I just can't. Well, well, thanks. So that's what kept my people alive for 5,700 years, Kathy. (laughs) I mean, it. 40 years of the desert wandering, it was our sense of humor. (laughs) I also love that it conjures a really specific time and place. Maybe because I'm also from Jersey. Um, You know, the food memories, (laughs) you know, back in the. You know, from from the poo poo platters at the Cantonese place to, to the pizza, like you're, you're you can you know you can totally see why you turn into this food connoisseur. Well, yeah, he, my my parents didn't like food. My mom especially had this really bad relationship with food. And um, I like how you say that's sort of a marker of like a proud Jewish mom. It's like she hated to cook. Uh, my, my my grandma was great. You know, I mean, grandma. Okay. You know, I'd go over her house. You know, grandma's funny. She yeah, and she'd stop yeah. and she'd the ice cream parlor and you know have you know give me french fries and ice cream mm-hmm. and then bring me home to eat some kugel you know it's just like stuff me my mom just um she'd take one look at me and say you need to lose some 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 weight and uh i mean listen you know you, know, you can take a look at my girlish figure it's uh i'm holding it together pretty good but yeah, my mom I, was like obsessed weight wow. obs- weight obsessed and all she ever ate was like like salmon like this is like every night and like mm-hmm. broccoli I mean, she could make like like a pretzel feel fat, <laughs> you know. I mean, and she never ate. And you couldn't go out to dinner with her because she'd look at you. You'd always get the stink eye from her, and, you know. And we'd go out to dinner, and you know. That's because she probably wanted to eat more, and then was like jealous. Or well, something. I don't know. that's part of the problem, and that's part of the message of this book. Is my parents were unhappy because they chose to be that way. They never chose. Happiness, and I think that's part of uh, you know the, the secret. And you know, there's a, sto- a story in here I tell about the worst fight my parents ever got into in public. The meatball pizza incident. <laughs> the great meatball pizza incident. I love the incident. ending to that. Yeah, let's talk about the meatball incident. <laughs> well, um, yeah, you know, first of all, 
uh, to reminisce about pizza in New Jersey in 1975. When I was 11, pizza was definitely a central role in my existence. Mm-hmm. And there was the one place down the street, Nino's, and it was like 40 cents for a slice. Uh-huh. Uh, but, it, but it was like dirty. There was like the, they had the, the, the signs that had the garlic knots I and the small, yeah, it was like yeah. a shitty magic marker. Oh, but Tony's, down at the Tano Mall on Amboy Avenue, 75 cents, which was like a fortune, uh-huh. but he had like the sign with like clean plastic letters. Mm-hmm. You know, you could tell. And he Fresh, also. Fresh, not stale. He knew editorial of pizza. Okay. You know, so he was, like the, he was like the evil Knievel of pizzas. We all <laughs> loved him. But um, yeah, it's like what I always tell my brother now, the pizza lesson is we don't eat tired pie. You know, I'm not yeah. eating something that's been sitting under a heat lamp for 12 oh, hours. Yeah. You know, um, and that's what the cheap place was. But Tony's, you know, he knew how to make a pizza. You know, he wasn't skimpy with the muds. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But anyway, they brought us up to this place. My parents and our neighbors, the Goldsteins, this other Jewish family. With the square-headed kid. <laughs> the square-headed. <laughs> uh, now, now, times have changed. They probably would have put a helmet on him when he was like two <laughs> to reshape his head. But they didn't have that technology then. Um, but, you know, it was a different time. I mean, you remember when we grew up where we used to play, like, in the swing sets and these jungle gyms, yeah. right? I mean, I don't know anybody who didn't get, like, second-degree burns from a jungle gym that oh, had been, God. like, broiled in the sun on August. You know, it was, like, so tender. We played in sandboxes. They like, cat pooping them and broken glass. <laughs> it was, like, in a nice, nice middle-class suburbia. I mean, you know, it's not like it was today. And people would eat the sand. Little kids would eat, be eating the sand. It's like, I, sp- like- I spent, basically, between the ages of, like, 8 and 18, I spent begging for supervision. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but the but pizza the- fight, so they brought us to this place called the White Birch Inn, which uh, was, I, I think, um, it might be Ford's or Islam, which uh, not, the, not the most affluent parts of New Jersey, uh, right by the circle at Routes 1 and 9, where they intersect, where there are a lot of you know cheap motels yes. up there. It's kind of mm-hmm. rough. And this cocktail lounge, but they made the best thin pie pizza in like the world thin crust pizza that's a revelation in the world. oh my yeah. god it was like a fucking epiphany you know I didn't realize mm-hmm. that pizza could actually be good because no one had actually gone out of their way to get good food it was not my experience you know right. with my parents we talked about the Chinese place the Jade Pagoda and you know my parents went that. there to get Lobster Cantonese because I think they figured it was the cheapest source of lobster, yeah, you know, and uh, it, it, was, it was like, you know, it was disgusting, but it was exotic without being threatening. Mm-hmm. That was the Jade Pagoda, right? Mm-hmm. And they would order a poo-poo platter for two, even though we were five, <laughs> you know, because this is like suburban Jews in New Jersey. They think this is how you, how you roll, right? Oh, it was awful. It, it was just the worst. So the meatball pizza thing, our neighbors ordered this meatball pie. My parents order pizza plain. My parents have no clue about family-style dining. Uh-huh. It's just not a thing. Even at home, it, it was terrible sitting down. Uh, we were laughing before about, you know, everything that I ate either said lechoy or ragu on, on it <laughs> or shake and bake. You know, that was the way my mother cooked, you know? And there's no such thing as sharing at the table. No, they, they, no. they don't, never got that. No. They never got that in the rest of their lives. Either yeah. you know, my parents were very own. retentive. They delayed happiness. They 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 pushed pleasure off. They always were so worried about the future that it became the enemy of their now. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They lived in fear: fear of carbohydrates, fear of calories, fear of salt, fear of sugar, and they could never actually sit down and enjoy something like a meatball pizza <laughs> when you got three beautiful kids and root beer and Elton John was playing on the jukebox. And how can how, this is like the greatest thing that ever right. happened? And they got into a fight with this other couple because we don't eat other people's food. And right. Mrs. Goldstein wanted me to try the meatball pizza, and I'm you know ten years old. I'm like, oh my god, meatballs on a pizza? This is like the greatest thing I've ever heard. 
hurt my life. I mean, how does this even work? I mean, are they whole meatballs? Do they, do they roll off? It was just like my mind was like boggling. And my dad was just like, no, you cannot have that because it's their pizza. You know, it's yeah. two families sitting down at a table. And, uh, you know, we each had to have our own root beer. We couldn't buy a pitcher of root beer. Okay, I don't know. No. I thought maybe you'd get dinged for you know, an extra cup of root beer that the little Goldstein boy would eat. You don't drink. It was just really bad. They're just screaming at each other in this pizza restaurant. And this comes from like a fear of like, oh, that seems like we can't provide for our kids. That, that you know, or... some sort of pride on my mm-hmm. father's part that I can provide. That you know, um, you know, that we can pay for everything. And we were just talking about pizza. I mean, seriously. Um, but that, my, my dad also had a bad relationship with money, and he was very um, uh, parsimonious in a lot of ways. And he really uh, bullied my mother with his pay- with his checkbook. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. um, he really put her down a, a lot. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's mo- it's Mom's Day, and this book really is about my my dad. But um, we thought maybe we'd talk a little bit yeah. with my mom today for a change for well, Mother's Day. Yeah, for Mom's not? Day, and because you know I am on tour uh, with the book, and we talk a lot about my dad, but I never really talk about my mom, who's so important to the book. We she died about two years ago. Sorry. And um, she was kind of a pill, too, to be honest with you. You know, I told him she was, you know, just this very angry woman. She had been bullied by my dad. She was really out of her depth. And I found a lot of compassion for her as well, even though she made my adolescence completely fucking miserable. (laughs) Um, You know, she she was a warrior and it came out as angry. And she didn't really bargain, I don't think, for... Well, or any sorts of problems. I mean, she wanted like perfect kids in a perfect world who grew up to be doctors and lawyers, and she forgot that kids are messy mm-hmm. and they come home drunk once in a while, you know. And and I got a little trouble, but I wasn't like part of the Manson family or anything like that, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, I got caught smoking dope, you know, and came home drunk, whatever. But on the other hand, I was yeah. like, I was like, a, you know, I was a merit scholar. <laughs> I mean, you got to take yeah. the good with the bad, and right, vice versa, right? right? So, uh, but I, but me and my mom died in very good terms, and this is really important after a lifetime of being at odds with each other. That um, we, we sort of found each other at the end, and she gave me, Kathy, the the, the greatest blessing you could get, and that's she ma- let me make her happy. She let me bring her some joy in the last moments of her life, which he had not done for uh, you know for fifty years. You know, I mean, well, a little less than that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I eulogized her after she died, I wrote, me and my mom got along great until I was three. <laughs> and because after that, you know, it just, I think my dad was yelling and it just, and I was the, you know, the firstborn, the oldest kid. And I just sort of like was right in the direct firing line. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so it was, it was pretty tough. But at the end, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I got you know, I sort of got her blessing, and she realized that I was happy, and uh, she was able to like let me hug her. My parents weren't big huggers. My mm-hmm. mom um, had cancer, and she she got sick and died really fast. Especially for someone who was an athlete, she swam and uh, played tennis all the time. Mm. Never ate goddamn thing. Yeah. You know? uh, but you know, I, I, I you know, which is sad because all the things she could have done, all the great fun she could have had, but she kept putting off because I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know why. So it's about that, you know, like. Let, letting the happiness in, and and that's amazing that your mom was able to do that in the last. And, few it, would, and, or so. and it made me. I just you know yeah. it, it it was it was Relax, great. Yeah. It was great because we parted on the best possible terms after a lifetime of contention. My father, not so much. <laughs> hey, two moms out there 
Um, should we come back with a little uh, reading from this book after a quick little commercial break? Sure. And I thought for a change, like I said, maybe we'd read about my mom because yeah. uh, taking this on the road and talking about my dad a lot. But, uh, but hey, it's Mother's Day. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back after a little commercial. just your garden it's the way you live and there's so much to know but you have help bonnie plants now with bonnie's app homegrown you can learn about veggie and herb varieties track and record your garden with photos and notes share on facebook and twitter and so much more how'd you ever grow without it get homegrown with bonnie plants for iphone and android the more you know the better you can grow with bonnie all right, we're back chatting more with Mike Edison, the author of You Are a Complete Disappointment, a memoir, a triumphant memoir of failed expectations. Mike, of course, is the host of Arts and Seizures, the show right after mine on Heritage Radio. And how lucky I am to follow you. I, I know. It's I'm like... so glad you could make it like half an hour early uh, for this. <laughs> All right, so let's hear from this passage. Okay. Uh, hey, Dave, why don't you give me some, some music on, on, on this one? Um, you know, I, I usually, when we take it out on the road, I always yeah. have my piano player, Mickey Finn. It's uh, really fun. I've who's, seen... Who's going to be joining me uh, on my show, and later mm-hmm. we're, this afternoon we're doing Snacky Tunes, and uh, we're going to get kind of kind of, kind of dirty on Snacky <laughs> Tunes, I think. Ah, is that Mozart? That's, well, I'm glad you're... That's, that's pretty good, Tony Mozart. No, but um, yeah. let me set it up. My mom, you know, uh, well, she lived in Florida, when, uh, like all Jewish snowbirds do, and um, there's just a little, little bit about visiting her uh, down there, and um. God, I've never read this part before because. Happy Mother's Day. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. Down in Florida, or as a suburban Jewish mom turned golf course grandma, it was her genetic imperative to die. She lived in a great gated community with a warren of like-minded northern refugees surrounding a clubhouse that provided a small retreat from the pawn shops, bail bondsmen, closed abortion clinics, and blacked-out windows that I presume to be meth labs that dotted the Florida landscape ad infinitum. It was like the Flintstones, where the background kept repeating itself. Rock, bigger rock, cactus, rock, bigger rock, cactus, rock, etc. Except in Florida, the background was Denny's Pawn Shop Meth Lab. And once you got inside of the Oasis West, or whatever precious name they gave the prefab community where my mom lived, the monotony continued. Everything, the houses, the cars, the people, looked exactly the same. It felt like the set of a movie about a suburb about to be attacked by space aliens. And oddly, it wasn't all that different from where my father lived in Arizona. And of course, you know, my parents hated each other and would never cough to how much they were actually alike. Uh, it's just that his was the pricier terracotta version out in the desert, carved out of dirt rather than a swamp. And it was called some sort of ranch, which was as perfectly preposterous as my mother's place being called an oasis, because calling something something doesn't make it that thing. So it's no wonder that for years I visited her only sporadically, even though for most of the year when she wasn't wintering in Florida, we lived just a short train ride away from each other. I was in New York City and she lived in New Jersey. And I know it's terrible because taking a 35-minute ride to see my mom seemed like a major schlep to me, but I was in high school. I never thought going in the other direction to New York City to score a Muddy Waters record. But then again, Muddy Waters never yelled at me. 
Muddy Waters never called me fat. Muddy Waters never clicked his tongue and talked to me through his teeth, which, you know, it's how Jewish mothers communicate with their children. It's kind of a tribal thing. (laughs) When I got older and I got over myself, I would visit her as often as she liked, because if there were a chance it would make her happy, who am I to deny her that joy? And it really wasn't that hard to make the trip, as long as I didn't actually have to go to her house, which is basically one giant sofa that no one could sit on for fear that they might get it dirty and then get yelled at. So I take the train down to see her, and she'd pick me up at the station and drive us over to the nearest shopping mall and make a grand production of buying me a shirt, the one activity that we had ever done successfully together that lasted more than a few minutes before one of us lost our patience. I mean, you couldn't eat lunch with her. My mom was weight-obsessed. She was always dieting. If you went to the food court in the mall with her, there was one allowable choice, salad. I once made an error on the play by ordering a turkey sandwich, and she made me get rid of the bread. I remember the time I made the mistake of going to her house for Thanksgiving. My brothers were going, and she insisted on seeing us all together. She leaned over my plate and, scolding me like a toddler, put back some of the turkey I just served myself, pushed the gravy away from me, and with a dirty look told me, you don't need any potatoes. And then she shut down dinner before dessert because you certainly don't need any pie either. (laughs) See, I have the opposite problem. I have a Chinese mom, and she's always shoving food literally in my face. Eat, eat! (laughs) Like, you're not eating enough! Well, that was my my grandma, you know? I mean, (laughs) you show up at her house, and, you know, I made you a potato kugel, and then I made you a luncheon kugel to take home with you, and, (laughs) and, you you know, and and, and here's some cake, and have some ice cream, and then before I take the bus, my... Uh, grandma lived um, in Connecticut, and I'd take the bus to visit her as often as uh, she would let me because I, I liked her. And, you know, <laughs> she's just a great old lady to sit around and so drink funny. coffee with and talk. And even after stuffing with food, she would insist we stopped at an ice cream parlor on the way to the bus. But and this is like when I'm 40 years old, too. There's something like a microcosm of like our relationship <laughs> with food as Americans, though, here in this generational differences. I think that, yeah, There's things a... got out of track, out of, you know... People got away from food. People were scared of food. I think there's partly a generational thing. Uh, you know, my parents, and I, and I sort of try to look at this, and there's definitely a generation gap, a huge mm-hmm. generation gap between my, my parents and me. They uh, were born in the late 30s. They were too old to really experience uh, what you what has come to be accepted as the 1960s experience. Mm-hmm. And by then, by 1960. You know, you know, four or five, my dad, you know, he was the man in the gray flannel suit. He was a square yeah, rushing back and climbers. forth. And, you know, he had me me, and two kids on the way. And it was all about work. And they didn't know who the Beatles were. I mean, it's ridiculous. They, I, I went through childhood. I was born in 1964. There was no talk of the Vietnam War, which I thought was very weird. The war didn't end to the mid-70s, right, 1975. <laughs> and it was on the front page of the paper every day. And I would ask questions. No, we don't want to talk about that because anything unpleasant was verboten. Mm. It, it was very, very weird. You know, it was small talk all the time. And I love how you recall like going to other kids' houses for dinner. You, it's so oh, well. enlightening. Like I remember <laughs> going to other kids' houses for dinner and seeing a different way of living and being. And and you you recall that too. And everyone has this experience when they go to someone else's house for dinner. People are different, and and you know, you like hilariously noted that you know people are talking to each other like friends. Well, <laughs> like, like they're actually interested. Do you have a girlfriend? What right. did you learn in American history today? <laughs> and you know, and they're like, oh, you know, and we were all like, we were kids, you know, discovering whatever the Beatles or whatever. And mm-hmm. the, turns out their parents knew who the Beatles were, mm-hmm. which I just mm-hmm. think my parents I mean they're they're very square, but they're not uneducated. They're not completely culturally inept. They had access to everything, and yet somehow chose to put these blinders on. Right. I think, like, yeah, how different families eat and how they 
how they relate to one another around eating. It's it really says a lot. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it in terms of guilt or uh, <laughs> I don't really do guilt. Yeah, and people say to me, "Oh, so you're you're, you're a rebel? Your parents are like this? So you're a rebel?" But I never saw it like that. Not a rebel like Marlon Brando. You know, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? I or, mean, or, you or, were or, the editor in chief of High Times. I mean, yeah, I was the editor. <laughs> yes. So I worked for a dope magazine. Yeah. yeah. I also worked for uh, porn magazines, Hustler and Penthouse. There you go. Uh, I wrote a lot of those Penthouse yeah. letters. Like a lot of them, and they used to pay pretty well too. Um, but the weird thing is, so I, so I got the sex magazines for it going, and uh, <laughs> the dope magazine. It, it's it's been said that um, my resume resembles a crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I, when I first got out of school, I worked for these professional wrestling magazines. Ah. It was the first job I got, and right up until my father died, he thought that was the most embarrassing thing. It was much much right. worse the wrestling magazine like, than the pot magazine right. or the sex magazine. Wrestling was too low. Too right. low. I'm going to ask a strange question, because, Mike, you're sort of kicking off a, a month of uh, memoirs. i got a lot of memoirs coming up on this show. Um, I tend to find, and I know you've written a few memoirs, so mm-hmm. you're an exception to this. Is memoir writing more of a women's field? Oh, my God. You know, when we first came out to sell this book, um, when I first had written the proposal, it took a while to develop this um, Actually, at first, it wasn't such a pure memoir. I was having trouble getting my head around what it needed to be. I really wanted to talk about um, class consciousness and status anxiety, which is what my father really suffered from. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a snob, Mm -hmm. and the worst kind of snob, because he (laughs) thought where you went to school and how much money you make actually informed your value as a human being, Mm -hmm. Um, which is really just like, you know, (laughs) he really looked (laughs) down, and he he punched down at people he thought, you know, who were were less than him, Uh uh, which, you know, sadly, my mother, I mean, not literally that he punched her, but he really, you know, put put her down for being, you know, this middle-class person trying to reach up by buying, like, a Gucci bag. Or uh, right, whatever, right, yeah. because my dad—that was his idea of like—that's a major theme. Yeah, okay. yeah. So you're thinking so, of but, like, but anyway, so we tried to sell, sell this book, and um, when it came around to being this memoir about my dad, and then my mom died, and I kind of pulled it back. I said uh, to my agent, "Stop, stop, stop! This needs to be part of the book because, you know, my mom and I really did die on, on these very. She died on good terms, and it was really, really a beautiful thing for us." And I thought it contrasted, and it had to be part of the book, so we, we took it back. And the first rejection letter we got was, this would be so much easier to sell if Mike were a woman. Oh, my God. And, and like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? Like, a professional editor at a large New York publishing house, that is, this is really great, we love it, but it would be much easier to sell if right. Mike were a woman. Uh, I, will begin, I will begin transitioning now. If that's, what it means to sell, <laughs> that's what it means to sell the book. Now, that makes me wonder what came first, the chicken or the egg. Like, uh, you know, are people not writing memoirs who are... Like, I think like, memoirs are having another moment. Gender, I think it they comes. They are having a moment. I, I think, yeah. I think it comes and, and, and goes uh, in the memoir writing. I'm a nonfiction writer largely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've done some fiction, but um, I, I like to experience something and then you know tell you and my story and, and hopefully in a way that's going to enlighten you and engage you and hopefully we can all come out of my experience you know you know a little bit better thanks you know, and, and you're also your your experience has i think finally convinced me i'm never having children ever <laughs> so yeah i came out of that with something yeah, yeah well all right. <laughs> Life uh, all right population control <laughs> well you know first of all people who don't want children shouldn't have them i'm all for kids but people who don't want children shouldn't have them well, and I, that was my old man's like he said i'd be just as happy without kids he dialed it back really quickly no 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 i love you guys right. but but the second he said it you knew he's just 
just a narcissist. He would have been just as happy without this because he never took pleasure in his kids. He couldn't dig being at a table eating pizza and root beer and Elton John. He was so happy, and he had to turn it into some kind of fucking scene. Like, whatever it was, it went south. Can we make this like our Mother's Day message kind of moral of the story? If you don't want kids, don't <laughs> fucking have them. <laughs> well, you know, you learn you learn these lessons. Um, there's, a, there's a chapter in my book about Jeepster, my cat. Uh-huh. Okay, I know it's a cat. I know it's not a kid. But this cat taught me about unconditional love and acceptance in a way that I hadn't really experienced before, mm-hmm. about being patient because he was the worst kitten of all time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, just, just a nightmare. He was a, he was a rescued kitten. Uh-huh. He had been, like, bitten by a dog. He was just really uh-huh. wounded and... You know, just like this, so, I mean, so cute, this little fur ball with a pink nose, you know, the color of like chewed bubble gum. And he's just this gorgeous kitten. And I took him home and, you know, and he, peed, and, he, and he peed in my laundry, you know, like, oh, <laughs> fuck, right? And it just got worse. He didn't stop. And I, so what do you do? You pick him up and you tell him that you love him. That's all you can do, because the alternative you know, that's not going to happen. I'm just not that guy. And even my vet said, Mike, he's ruining your life. I mean, this has been going on for months. You know, your house is smelling. He's like, this is really bad. I don't know what to tell you what to do, but you have to consider the fact that your lifestyle is very important, too. Mm -hmm. And my solution, again, was to pick him up and tell him I loved him. The cat, not the vet. (laughs) Um, So, in other words, you said you are a complete uh, triumph. You're you're a champion, you know? And And he's... The cat's great. He grew up in this like wonderful cat. He's so sweet. We're best buddies now. And you know, I can tell he looks at me. He says, "Like you know, he tells me." He says, "Thanks, buddy. Thank you. You rescued me, and you 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 know, you took me out of that bad place I I was." He's still a little challenged, frankly, but um, (laughs) but he was very very traumatized little wounded rescue kitten. And that's the thing. You've got to accept your children for who they are. And that's the message of this book and for moms and mom day and dad's father's day is coming up yeah it was it was rough for me it was but you gotta let your kids be the people they want to be not the people you think they should be and that sword cuts both ways of course too in terms of accepting our parents for who they are um and it should be unconditional love flowing in both directions it really really should be that's the message i've learned and it's uh you know it's sad that i kind of got beaten up along the way but uh you know we're having a laugh here we're talking about meatball pizza definitely definitely having a laugh here and and it's a a wonderful (laughs) message and uh it is a very unusual kind of roundabout way to come to such conclusions but i'm so glad that you shared them with us well the book's got a happy ending and on the book the happy ending is is, uh me on your show kathy right here that's it that's where it all went to A complete triumph or champion. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I guess that's about all the time we have for today. But uh, thank you so much, Mike. Um, Just uh, just out last week, you are a complete disappointment. Out from Sterling Publishers. Get your hands on it and laugh your ass off on the subway. And please uh, come out and see me. I'm on on the road and I'm bringing the great Mickey Finn with me. In fact, in about 20 minutes, Mickey's going to be on the radio with me on my show. Stick around. Arts and Seizures. And we're going to talk about uh, how we became this storytelling uh, musical team on the road. And at 4.30, we're actually going to do a real performance on Snacky Tunes. Nice. Uh, all the tour dates are on MikeEdison.com. So we're going to be in uh, San Francisco Friday the 13th. We're going to be in Oakland Saturday. We're going to be in L.A. next week. We're coming back to Brooklyn, New Jersey, Chicago, Milwaukee. Please uh, get a copy no of the chance. book and tell your friends. No but, excuse to but, miss. But, but come on out yeah. and see us because uh, we, re- we really do. This is not a normal book reading, I promise you. It's uh, We are troubadours for a new world. I am sure. And, and stick around and listen to that. All right. Thanks again, Mike. No quiz? No, no, but no, next time. <laughs> we, got, we got you next time. Damn, we I was got, looking forward to we, acing we, something. So much to cover. All right, thanks, thanks a lot, David. Everyone at Heritage, we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. 
Listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Feel so good inside.